It's a great pleasure to conduct this interview with you this afternoon, Mr. DeMille. You're certainly a unique figure in the industry, both from the standpoint of the length of your career and from the standpoint of the continuously high quality of your pictures. Many of your earliest films were adapted from plays, but with your extraordinary skill for the new medium, you began to expand and transform the plays in a manner more suitable for screen treatment. Would you comment on this with several illustrations? We go back, uh, Mr. Brandt, to the first Squawman, the uh, Virginian, the Girl of the Golden West, the Warrens of Virginia. Take those pictures. In the so-called legitimate theater, it's impossible to, to paint on a large canvas. The stage must describe in words what the screen can depict in life. That is, the screen can actually show what the stage must confine to description, such as uh, in the, the Virginian, the cattle drive, for instance, in the Girl of the Golden West, well, the Golden West, the stage can only paint a backdrop and throw some colored lights on it. But uh, we use the painting that God made. We use the actual Golden West. We can bring the mountain to Mohammed. We don't have to uh, resort, except under certain circumstances, to the stage technique. The Warrens of Virginia is one of the early examples of that. The climax is the, is the destruction of a supply train. Now, Mary Pickford and I played in the original production with David Belasco, and uh, I had to come in and describe the destruction of the, of the supply train. That was my part. In the motion picture, we showed the destruction of the supply train. It was one of the early big scenes ever done in motion pictures. And it was very, very effective. In the days of the, the silent picture, the stage still had the advantage, though. Because uh, in three or four words, it could convey an idea that the silent film would have to take two or three or four or five hundred feet to convey to the audience's mind. But with the discovery and the use of sound on film, the screen had combined both the elements of the legitimate theater and the technique of the silent picture. Geraldine Ferrar has written us to tell with gratitude how sympathetic your direction was in Carmen. She also remembers that music was played while scenes were filmed. Would you give us a few recollections of the production, sir? Hmm. Well, the... Uh... The whole idea of that was a rather startling incident because uh, to engage and play upon a great metropolitan opera voice in a silent picture was something unusual to hand a director because I had to convey this woman's great, great ability to sing, which I did in several of the scenes, both in Common and in Temptation, another play that we made for her. Well, I felt the audience with their knowledge of her voice would understand, so I showed it in the effect on the audiences 
that is the the audiences on the screen that were watching it so that they were deeply moved by her singing but her singing only consisted of a piano or an orchestra playing out in the pit in front but the the atmosphere of the silent film studio was was not conducive to to real emotion or the concentration. It was noisy, there was bang going around, sets were put together. It was very different from the, the modern studio as you know it. And uh, that is why we brought what was called mood music. That is, we brought a small orchestra, sometimes only one piece, sometimes a violin, sometimes we had violin and piano, that played through the different scenes to help the actor to concentrate on his performance and not realize that a set was being built uh, 30 feet away from him with hammers going and that uh, people were talking and another director would be directing something else in a loud voice down the end of the same stage. So that the music was brought in as a, well, music hath charms to soothe the savage beast and it also had uh, uh, the ability to concentrate the thoughts of director, actor, and all taking part in a certain sequence upon that sequence and create a mood where you could begin to get real acting. Yes. The cheat, a scenario written especially for the screen, impressed audiences greatly, especially in the trial scene, when Sashu Hayakawa, under your direction, gave a performance more powerful because of its restraint. Would you tell us a little about this, sir? Well, Sessio Hayakawa is a very good actor. He was then and he is yet. But the, the main thing that that showed is that uh, I do not teach actors how to act. I direct them. I do not show them. I don't uh, show them how I would play their parts the whole performance is from them. I direct their talent. In fact, when I, I uh, talk a script or talk a part to a certain actor, I never give the actor a scenario of the play to read first. I tell him the story from the angle of that character so that he sees the story from the view of that individual character that he is going to play. And after I have satisfied myself in conversation with him, that he uh, has the idea of the character as, as it is in the script, and uh, if it is in one of my scripts, it has the stamp of my work on it, then I give him a script to read. There are different methods of direction. Some, some directors teach their actors how to act. I do not. I do not think that is the function of directing. I instruct them to play the part as they would play it. And I get their conception of the character. Then I mold their conception. I work upon their conception, not upon mine. And that way you don't get 20 little Cecil DeMille's running around the stage. <laughs> you get the individual personalities of each actor. And that's probably why I've made so many stars. 
Some critics, Mr. DeMille, described Joan the Woman as the greatest of the early screen spectacles, along with D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation and Intolerance. Would you comment on this production and also on the contribution of D.W. Griffith? Well, the picture Joan the Woman, which was the story of Joan of Arc, founded somewhat upon Mark Twain's work on Joan of Arc, which I think is, to me, the most moving ever written on the subject of that wonderful soul. That's why it was called Joan the Woman. The ironclad saint had been depicted uh, many times, but the tender woman had not been reached until Mark Twain uh, wrote his work on her. And I followed that line. The picture was not a tremendous success. It came along at the beginning of uh, the World War, 1916. But it was one of the big uh, spectacles of, of armored horsemen. I remember I had 14 directors out, the 14 directors that Paramount had at the time, and I had them in control of the 3,000 extras on the set. And uh, the charge of these uh, knights with Joan at the head of them in actual armor, the actual metal armor, not uh, paper mache, with real lances against the stockade was one of the first uh, big spectacles that anyone had, had seen, spectacles of that type. They've been made since then in War and Peace, I think perhaps has the best one. The Crusades has the best one that I've ever made. But you asked me to comment on Griffith, who made Intolerance about the same time. Intolerance, unfortunately, was the picture really that, that uh, broke him, because uh, he made a dramatic error that should never be made. In other words, he told four stories under the guise of one, and consequently all four failed, because uh, that is a formula that, so far as I know, has never been successful on the stage. One-act plays can be successful, but not the same story attempted to be told, the same theme running through four separate stories as one play and it did not succeed. The, uh, I think, consensus of opinion in the world about Griffith is that the greatest thing he gave in motion pictures was the birth of a nation. And I do not agree with this. I think the birth of a nation was perhaps his best picture. But he gave something more valuable than all of his pictures, or all of mine. He was the first one and the one who taught us all to photograph thought. That is to bring a camera close enough to photograph the expression of the eyes. The eyes are the windows of the soul, someone has said. And uh, he is photographing thought. He's photographing the soul when he can photograph the depth of the eyes. And that is what Griffith taught us that was great. And Griffith is my number one director. The, uh, 
close-up. He did not invent, as so many people think he did, was invented earlier than that in comedy pictures. John C. Rice and Sally Cohen, I think, were the first ones in the close-up, and May Irwin had uh, one or two uh, amusing close-ups, but they were not. They were photographs purely for comedy. They were not photographs for thought. That is the greatest contribution that, that uh, Griffith made to the screen, and I'm a great admirer of his pictures. Which pictures in particular do you admire? Uh, the Birth of a Nation, uh, Broken Blossoms, Orphans of the Storm, then you go back into the early ones, the Battle of Elderberry Gulch, and I think it's a one reeler, two reeler, that's right. And uh, that, that was a wonderful picture. I ran it not long ago, but uh, I'm a Griffith fan. Of the two films in which you directed Mary Pickford, Mr. DeMille, one, The Little American, is in the Eastman House collection. Would you document this film with some commentary? Well, it was the first so-called war picture made in World War I, as far as I know. The Little American was made uh, just before we went into the war few months before, and it was my first direction of, of Mary Pickford, though as I said earlier, we both appeared together on the stage in David Belasco's Warrens of Virginia, which was written by my brother. Uh, the Little American was Jack Holt's first uh, important lead. I had uh, seen him as a cowpuncher out on the Universal Ranch, and I engaged him from that. And uh, he always wore gloves. He always did, I think, as long as he lived. He played many parts for me after that. I was very fond of him as, a, as an actor because of his, his reserve and his strength. But uh, we were just beginning to understand, the time I made The Little American, what the intelligence department of one of the big powers meant. Uh, Seifertitz, uh, played the part of the head of the German intelligence in the United States. And uh, Jack Holt was being called back to Germany because he had been a, born in Germany. But the little American put Mary Pickford in a completely new light. That is, uh, she had been playing America's sweetheart and being always sweet. And I put her in the part of uh, a girl that went through the rough parts of the, of the war. One of the great situations in it was when Jack Holt, playing the young German officer, leading a group of drunks, breaks into a French chateau and they start to have their way with the women. The room is dark and uh, Holt finds himself uh, with his own fiancée in his arms. Uh, he didn't know that uh, little Mary had left America and was in France on the Red Cross service. That is one of the most tensely dramatic situations. Then there was one of the most interesting things in that picture that I have ever seen in my 45 years of picture making. We had a German shell strike a church in which Mary had taken sanctuary as she was trying to get across no man's land. 
rebuild the church up. The church had a large crucifix on one wall. As the explosion went off, the walls parted and were blown to pieces, and the crucifix was left standing against the fire and smoke of the battlefield background. Now that was not planned. That happened all by itself. But it was one of the most dramatic things I have ever seen. Would you comment a little, Mr. DeMille, about the, uh, the missing uh, shipwreck sequence in our print? Yes. As far as I know, the little American had the first scenes of a submarine torpedoing a ship. The ship was the Lusitania. And uh, we showed the submarine sighting the ship and firing the torpedo, uh, the striking of it. Inside, uh, the people were dancing with confetti and merriment going on. It was the first time, as far as I know, where the set was on a large rocker, so that we could show the deck tilting and tilting and tilting as the water started to rush in through the portholes. Then you came up onto the deck where the ship was heeled way over and the people slid down the side of the ship into the water. It was a very, it's a very graphic scene. Then you show them on the raft where your print picks it up again. I'll try and get you a print of that if I can. I have an unrun print of the Little American, but it's, uh, what, uh, 40 years old by now, almost. <laughs> the Whispering Chorus has been referred to as one of your finest early productions, Mr. DeMille. It is said that the realism in this story was too much for audiences of the time, and that because of this, the picture was relatively unsuccessful financially. Would you comment about the film and these particular angles, sir? It was not a big success financially, but the more than the reason of the picture for that. The picture was released at a time when uh, it was the darkest hours of the war for us. It was the first psychological drama and uh, people didn't know really just how, how to receive it. They were at a loss. It was a big turn in the uh, themes for pictures, which have since gone on to important, uh, important values. But the values were in the picture because it has been made twice since under different titles. Well, I wasn't aware of that. Once by uh, Ernst Lubitsch, and uh, the title of uh, Way of All Flesh. And then uh, it was made uh, again. Yes. It will be a good picture when, when it's made uh, the next time, too, <laughs> because it's one of the best stories in the world. It's a man who hangs for his own murder. Yes. Would you give us, as a comparison, would you cite uh, as an example of picture of the time or close after which was very successful financially. The male and female was perhaps the, the uh, it was the biggest success of that time. It was our first picture to go over a million dollars, to reach a million and a half dollars. Yes. Mm -hmm. That was uh, James M. Barry's The Admirable Crichton. We had to change the title from The Admirable Crichton to uh, Male and Female because uh, I was certain that the public would believe the Admirable Crichton 
was a naval picture <laughs> of the Admiral Crichton, somebody probably of the Civil War or the War of 1812. The picture cost $168,000 and uh, grossed more than a million and a half. That was uh, Thomas Meehan and Gloria Swanson. Oh, there's a very funny incident that I'll tell you, if you wish. Please, sir. There's a scene, uh, if you know the story, yes. shipwrecked on a, on a tropical island, and there were leopards on the island. And Tommy Meehan had been the butler of the house, and he was now really the king of the island, and the ladies and the lords were serving him. And uh, I wanted to do a scene of of uh, the admirable Crichton, uh, Crichton the butler, killing a leopard and uh, saving the girl, Gloria Swanson. Well, I don't know whether you've ever seen a stuffed leopard, but stuffed leopards are no good for, <laughs> for me. And I said, I will use a live leopard. And uh, they said, Mr. Meehan can't very well put a live leopard on his shoulder because uh, the leopards aren't like that. The Selig Zoo had had an accident. A leopard had killed a man and was condemned to be destroyed. So I phoned and said I would buy the leopard and they could destroy him afterward. But uh, we'd bring right over on the set and destroy him and then you'd have a nice limp leopard to hang on Tommy Meehan's shoulder. But when the leopard got to the set, it was one of the most beautiful animals I have ever seen. And I said, we cannot destroy an animal as handsome as that. He's the best specimen of leopard that I've ever seen. So we will chloroform him instead. And I sent to the drugstore, and we bought all the chloroform and all the sponges they had. We brought the chloroform up and poured it on the sponges and put it in the cage, and then covered the cage with uh, canvas. And there was quite a to-do inside there for a few minutes, and then the leopard was quiet. Well. Tommy Mayen had been watching this procedure, and uh, Gloria Swanson had been watching it, but Gloria was a wonderful trooper, so was Tommy. But Gloria would do anything. If I said do it, she would do it and ask questions afterward. But Tommy wanted to ask the questions before. But uh, I had rehearsed the scene, so I said, we've got to lift this leopard right out and put him right on your shoulders. But it'll look wonderful, because he's hanging absolutely limp. We hung him on the shoulders and went on with this love scene. Nobody had told me that under chloroform, uh, people sometimes talk in their sleep. And that applies to leopards. So in the middle of this love scene, this leopard began to growl. And you heard this rumble coming from the depths of his being while Tommy was saying, I love you, Gloria, with all my heart, and so forth and so forth, and this leopard is saying, boom, 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 And remember, this was a silent picture, so Tommy said, my God, Mr. DeMille, he's coming too, he's coming too. I said, go on with the scene, he's all right. So Tommy went on and played the scene with Gloria. Gloria never batted an eye, she was perfect, you know, and this leopard is, you know, in the middle of the scene. And after the scene, I said, all right, Tommy, you can throw him away now. Is Well, that leopard weighed, I think, close to 300 pounds. And Tommy has the shot put record for the distance of putting 300 pounds. 
And that uh, is one of the story of male and female that I remember. It's a little, probably a little foreign to what you are no, searching for all. here. But not at all, sir. Those are the things that happened. <laughs> In an unusual series of films dealing with married life, you began, Mr. DeMille, as one critic expressed it, with the fade-out at the end of the average picture. You then proceeded to show that marriages were sometimes beset by disturbances. This is a revolutionary conception on the screen, and it remains so to this day, when the clinch is still the most popular finale. Would you discuss this, sir? Well, the uh, clinch is very wonderful. Everybody who's ever been married will agree to that. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't always stay clinched. After a certain number of years, different traits start to develop that you didn't know were there, perhaps. Uh, and uh, little irritations come in. Old Wives for New was the first. That was uh, David Graham Phillips, wasn't it, the book? Uh, Don't Change Your Husband, which was an original, I think, of Janie McPherson's, and Why Change Your Wife, which was an original of William DeMille's, and The Affairs of Anatole, all dealt with uh, uh, marital troubles. The divorce was becoming more and more frequent. And uh, so I took the different little traits that can be cultivated into divorce. The first one I remember, which is old wives for new, was a slight uncleanliness on the part of a wife. Little things at first, but then after a while, just uncleanliness. I mean, the bathroom never looked nicely. It was always a ring around the mm -hmm. tub or something, and it was unpleasant. And uh, this man she was married to was a very wonderful young man, and, and he didn't like it. And that led to his finding one that was uh, different, that was dainty and sweet. I made the first play from that. Well, that was a sensational success, but Paramount nearly uh, severed their connections with me because they had just come out with a long and expensive campaign of advertising to the effect that everything was going to be sweet and dainty in their pictures and pure and beautiful. And when I came out with uh, Old Wives for New, they came to the conclusion that I had pretty well ruined Paramount. <laughs> so I took the film down to a, a little town, put it under my arm and took it down myself and previewed it. The house was a few people in it, probably third full. By the time this picture was half over, all the men began going out and coming back, going out and coming back. And I said, they're telephoning their wives. She said, oh, we've got to keep this for a second showing. So uh, I said, all right. Well, they ran the picture all night. They didn't stop. And the man begged me to let him keep it the second night. So I came back and told Paramount to call up the exhibitor and find out how the picture went, if they didn't think a social subject was an interesting subject to an audience. Well, that led to the making of Don't Change Your Husband and For Better, For Worse and Why Change Your Wife. And uh, I think those pictures did a very a great deal of good.